Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and leave some positive reviews. So our guest today is Professor John Nielsen Gammon, who is a professor of meteorology at Texas A&M and the Texas State Climatologist. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. All right. And, and you have been the state climatologist for a long, long time. Is that like being a king where you basically have it for life? Uh, I may or may not work out that way, but with climate, we deal with 30-year timescales, so it does tend to last longer. Okay. All right. Very good. We've talked in the past on this show about some policy aspects related to climate change, carbon taxes, nuclear power, all sorts of stuff. I thought it would be good to step back and just try and get a sense of you know what the, what the underlying issues were in climate. And I know there's a lot of confusion and maybe some vagueness. Uh, that goes on when people is a lot a lot of I think talking past each other when people talk about climate up to and including the definition of climate change. So maybe we could start there. What is climate change? How would you define climate change? Well, you know, I mean, basically you could you could call climate change just any change in the climate. The climate changes all the time um, for a variety of reasons. The climate change we care about for policy purposes is whatever is going to happen in the future, which includes some natural aspects, but also significant uh, drivers of change due to man's activities. So sometimes you could use the term anthropogenic climate change. Anthropogenic means man-caused, but realistically, we should plan for all future climate responses, whether, whether it's by man or by volcano or what have you. So when I use the term climate change, I'm talking about something that is happening now and is going to continue to happen that's uh that's 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 predominantly uh man influenced. Okay, so over the past uh well in recent decades at least since 1950, we've seen a trend of of warming that has been attributed to, you know, largely to human activities, There's some question of, you know, what exactly the mix of natural versus human factors is. That's that's a point of contention and then, you know, how it's going to continue. If you had to just lay out, you know, for people who are not experts in this field or whatever, so obviously there are many natural sources of climate change, as you mentioned, you know, volcanoes you mentioned, but uh, there could be change, you know, changes in like affecting the oceans or changes in solar output, all sorts of different stuff. So how is it that we know that there is a substantial human influence on recent warm, you know, the, the, the recent warming is the result, substantially the result of, of human influence, particularly uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but maybe also changes in agriculture or other stuff like that. How do we know that? Right. So the um, we'll, we'll focus specifically on changes in global temperature, which can drive and cause other changes as well. Most natural variability, we think of things like El Nino, which which has a big impact on local climate, is is predominantly some places getting warmer, some places getting cooler, that sort of thing. Um, they don't fundamentally involve a change in the amount of energy coming into the climate system from the sun or the amount of energy going out. Those things 
things affect the energy balance. Sun's intensity can change, so that's that would affect what's coming in. Volcanic activity can lay out a uh, basically a blanket of particles in the stratosphere that can affect the amount coming in. If there's some change in, um, say, uh, snow and ice cover, like we had during the last ice age, that affects the amount of energy coming in and staying because ice is white, and so everything uh, that hits it basically gets reflected back out to space. So it has a cooling effect in that regard. Uh, so those are all things that we know about. They're pretty easy to understand. They're also pretty easy to measure. So we know that um, over the past 40 or 50 years, the sun hasn't gotten substantially brighter. Uh, volcanic activity hasn't done anything particularly out of the ordinary. And we also haven't had a big changes in ice sheets other than, uh, say, well, Glaciers and sea ice have, have, have changed a bit, but not enough to cause big changes in temperature globally. So those are the inputs. Um, outputs, um, the Earth is constantly losing energy to space, and it does it mainly through um, energy that's emitted by the atmosphere. And that's where the greenhouse gases come in. We've got mostly an atmosphere of nitrogen and oxygen, which doesn't happen to have the right chemical structure to be able to emit energy at typical temperatures. Uh, so you have to go down the list. Water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, most other molecules actually can do that. And uh, we have great models for calculating how much energy gets emitted and how much gets es escapes to space based on the, the temperature, the composition, the whole bit. Um, we use that to design satellites. The whole space industry in the past 30, 40 years uh, relies on the accuracy of those calculations. So bottom line from that is we know how much the amount of energy going out to space has changed because of increases in greenhouse gases. So you can look at the balance sheet and uh, um, gee, greenhouse gas increase, uh, that's... Um, couple of uh, what we call watts per meter squared. That's our energy unit. We'll just call it two for the sake of discussion here. The amount of pollution we put in the air that's actually in the form of haze and things like that that blocks sunlight has had a cooling influence, maybe on the order of uh, zero to one unit of cooling. But the sun's been about zero, little change in that. Volcano's been about zero, little change in that. And natural variability seems to be only capable of causing global changes in a stable climate like ours of, of one or two tenths of a degree. So you just look at the balance sheet of things that drive the climate system and the, the number that stands out is the warming effect of the greenhouse gases. And so that's why we consider that most of the warming since 1950 has been that's because the sun hasn't caused it, volcanoes haven't caused it, Natural variability actually has gone through basically one complete cycle in the in the oceans over that period, so it's back to where it was, so it hasn't caused a trend either. And in fact, the evidence says that there's a good chance that without the increase of greenhouse glasses, we, gases, we'd be cooler than we were in 1950. So the, the greenhouse gases have caused more warming than actually took place because the other effects have, have moderated it to some extent. Okay. That, yeah, that's interesting. So, it, you know, when people, I, I remember watching a couple months ago, Bill Nye, the science guy was on 
the Tucker Carlson program and he was asked, well, you know, how much of the of the warming is actually due to humans? Is it 70 percent, 80 percent or whatever? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of crosstalk. Not, not quite sure how to answer that. But what you would say is, well, actually, it could be more than 100 percent, right? Because it could be without human influences, the world would be getting cooler. And so, you know, not only is all the recent warming due to human activity, but also then some to counteract whatever that cooling would be. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's not it's not just thing, things uh, warming the atmosphere, things cool it as well. And it's how those how those differences work themselves out that gives us uh, what we actually get. It also sounds like, you know, the, if I had to put the basic case to you, it's sort of like we can eliminate all the usual suspects naturally. You know, we know it's not changes in the sun. We know it's not this, that. We also know that greenhouse gases, uh, things equal, should be making things warmer. So if the world is getting warmer and we're putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and none of the natural things that we know about can account for it, that's probably why. Yeah. You could, and scientifically, you could start with that. And then you would want to do a sanity check. You want to see, well, is the greenhouse gas influence actually large enough to cause the sort of warming that we actually observe? And so you can create a, a, a climate model that simulates what goes on in the atmosphere. And that says at least it's the right order of magnitude. Climate models aren't real good at pinning things down because there's so many parameters involved, but at least it's in the right ballpark. And then you can also look at what's happened in the past with, uh, say, uh, how much colder it was during the last ice age and how the energy balance was different then. And we find that uh, the sort of sizes of changes in energy in and energy out that caused temperature differences back then imply about the same climate sensitivity as it would take for the greenhouse gases to cause the temperature increase we've seen now. So all the data matches up within the error bars. Let me ask specifically about the models, because you hear all sorts of different things out in the media. Some people say, oh, the models have done a, a pretty good job of predicting temperature changes up to this point. Other people say, no, 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 the models have really overestimated the amount of warming that we've seen. And I know that there, there are different types of models for one, you know, there are different models, but there's also different observation series, you know, whether you're talking about satellites or I think there's weather balloons, ground stations, which may show somewhat different things. But if you had to just kind of judge, you know, how, how accurate have these models actually been up to this point? You know, has there been less warming than they would predict to a large extent or, or what is your sense of that? I think they've been over, over say the past uh, 20 or 30 years, um, been showing uh, warming that's about uh, 10 or 15% higher than what's actually been observed. And here I'm speaking of the average of, of, of literally dozens of computer models. Some of them come out uh, with less increase. Some come out with much greater increase. They're all, they're all in about the same, same ballpark, but there's, there's variations within them. But I think uh, something that gets lost a lot when people talk about models is uh, the model is only going to be as good as what's fed into it. So if you want a model to uh, accurately reproduce what happened in the past climate for the right reasons, then you would want to have the, the right inputs. You want to know, okay, what was exactly the greenhouse gas concentrations back then? How strong was the sun back then? That sort of thing. Well, we don't actually have a good measure of how much things like um, 
particles in the atmosphere have changed over the past hundred years. So you actually can take a model that's 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 pretty good and make it match the observations exactly by or almost exactly by picking numbers within the range of, of possibility that actually make things work out right. So I really don't would not put any stock in the fact the models are say on average, right on the money, or within 10%, or within 20%, that doesn't really tell you anything. Uh, they're just good for giving you a, a, a rough order of magnitude of, of, of how big the change ought to have been. And indeed, we scientists don't use climate models for that purpose. We use them mainly for lots of different purposes, like understanding how the climate system behaves, how things interact with each other, what sorts of processes are important, which ones are unimportant. Um, how much, for example, the difference in the heat going into the oceans is going to make a difference down the road, atmospheric temperatures. Most of the people who say that the, the models are way off are doing some combination of picking some measure that maximizes the difference. If you chose some other way of plotting it, it would come out closer. Or they're focusing on areas where you have big mismatches. Uh, for example, tropospheric temperatures in the tropics, uh, air temperatures between, uh, say, 1 and 10 miles above the ground in the tropics. Well, that's not the sort of thing that, that uh, most people would think about as an important thing for the weather they experience. But models uh, have, on average, and in fact, almost all of them, come out uh, with more of a temperature change there than what's actually been observed according to most but not all data sets. And so, you know, sometimes people will say from that, well, of course, if the models disagree with the data, the models have to be wrong. But actually, the uncertainties in the data are uh, as large as the uncertainties in the models. We have uh, differences of 20% in the rate of warming that occur with updates to the satellite data sets, for example. That's a normal magnitude of change in the observations. So at this point, the agreement between the models and observations is close enough that it's within the range of uncertainty of the models and the observations as well, so that there doesn't there's not necessarily something fundamentally wrong with either one. And so there's not a whole lot of attention being devoted to that particular difference. So let me turn to climate impacts, right? Uh, current and future. So one thing that I hear a lot, I had dinner recently with a kind of liberal-ish journalist, I won't say who, but he, in the course of the dinner, he mentioned to me that he was actually pretty skeptical of climate change. And the thing that he mentioned, which I hear from a lot of people is, well, it seems like whatever happens, people say it's a result of climate change. So if there's a drought, there's no rain, that's climate change. If there's flooding, there's a lot of rain, that's climate change. If it's really hot, people say that's climate change. Uh, if it gets cold, there's like a polar vortex. They say that's climate change. Uh, climate change in this sense here, meaning as a result of human activity. Would you say that's fair? Is it actually the case that, well, you know, these models predict one thing in one place and, and another in another, or there's just, you know, uh, there's lots of different scientists making predictions. Some of them are more certain than others. What is the overall picture as far as our understanding of what the likely impacts are from climate change? Yeah, I mean, given that uh, just about any aspect of science is going to have a, a range of scientific opinions about it, um, 
it's pretty easy to find a scientist that himself or herself is confident that a particular type of extreme weather is being caused by climate change. And we scientists are dismayed by this whole situation also, because that perception that, that your your journalist friend has, and and I'm sure is a perception shared by most people from, from what I understand and what I talk to, is if someone's doing a story about uh, some particular phenomenon, it's, it's more interesting and newsworthy and eye-catching to have a quote from a scientist that says, um, yeah, climate change was, was important for that, rather than someone who says, well, we really don't know. We need to do more research on it. Plus, if you can't find a scientist that uh, is convinced that uh, climate change caused it, then there's plenty of non-scientists who have basically, uh, well, the, the Guadalajara hailstorm, right? Uh, back in, uh, I guess it was late June, there was a big hailstorm in Guadalajara, Mexico, which dumped uh, hail, which then got carried by water, ended up being deposited in drifts several feet tall. And one of the local officials said, yeah, well, see, here's, here's what climate change is doing to us. And that made most of the news stories. But scientists don't think that was something that was necessarily caused by or made worse by climate change. We don't know climate change's effect on small, high-volume hailstorms, for example. But still, it comes out as someone saying, climate change caused this. Another example of that is, um, say, um, cold, uh, extreme winter weather, polar vortex you mentioned. There is research that says that uh, one consequence of climate change is that uh, the jet stream structure will change and that's going to cause cold weather to get locked in more frequently in particular places, that sort of thing. And there's other research on the same topic that says, no, that's not the way it's going to work out. But uh, the research that says it is, is what gets 90% of the attention in the news media. So, Yes, one should be skeptical about all these claims of extreme weather being caused by climate change, but it's a it's a it's a consequence um, from where I sit of how things get filtered through the news media into public perception rather than a consequence of where the science actually is. I have had the sense sometimes when you know media discussions or politician discussions of climate change that. There's a kind of, uh, you know, a game of telephone, the children's game where things get repeated and they gradually get distorted. So one example of this I, I wanted to ask about, so, you know, it's a big thing that we hear a lot now is, you know, the scientists tell us we have 12 years to stop climate change or uh, it's going to be the end of the world, something like that. If you are able, can you just kind of like walk back? How is that accurate? What, you know, what, what, what is that originally based on? And what are the differences between what people say in the media sometimes? And, and you know, what is the original image uh, that that's based on? Yeah, since, since this is a podcast, uh, the listeners couldn't see me stifling a laugh <laughs> while you brought that up. You know, basically, so... Um, let's go back to Paris, the Paris Accords. The NATO signatories agreed to uh, try really, really hard to limit global warming to two degrees and to strive for limiting it to one and a half degrees. And one of the outcomes of that was the request to the IPCC to write a report on how much of a difference would it make if we kept warming to one and a half degrees rather than two degrees. And the report basically said, yeah, it would help. 
if you kept it lower, certainly, uh, you know, all of the impacts would be smaller. It would be nice if that happened. But then, of course, how to do that report said, well, you know, you've got to reduce emissions fairly drastically and fairly quickly. Um, and they said, picked a couple of dates and said, okay, by 2030, it has to be down this much. By 2050, it has to be done this much. And those were just benchmark dates. And uh, somehow or another, that got translated into we have to do something by 2030, which is where the 12 years comes from, because the report was released in 2018. And in reality, it's wrong for two huge reasons. First huge reason is, if you want to keep global warming below 1.5, the report said, you have to start now. You have to have already made substantial reductions by 2050. If you wait 12 years, you have absolutely no hope whatsoever of keeping temperatures below 1.5. You wait 11 years, you have no hope. If you wait five years, you you have almost no hope. You have to start now. So saying you have 12 years is, is wrong. And then the idea that the climate goes off a cliff, if this doesn't happen in 12 years, is also wrong. That particular report has a, has a chart on it. It's, the, uh, it's like the second chart in the summary for policymakers that looks at a whole range of impacts and, you know, have, having a weak, small risk, moderate risk, high risk, very high risk. And it's this blurry continuum. The higher up you go at global temperatures, the higher the risk go of these uh, adverse weather events, adverse climate events, adverse impacts. But there's no one of these graphs that says, whoop, you've passed this number, you're sunk. Um, it's all a matter of degree, no pun intended. It's all a matter of, you know, gradually getting worse as the climate gets warmer. So we don't have 12 years to stop climate change. We have to start now if we want to have the biggest impact. But any little thing that gets done, even if it's after 12 years from now, is still going to reduce the risks in the future because it's going to reduce the consequences. I understand why people want to say we have 12 years because setting deadlines is useful for getting things done. Right. I know that in my own work. If I don't have a deadline, I don't get anything done. But that deadline is motivated in public policy, not in science. Yeah. Supplies are running out to so act now. So I want to talk a little bit about some of you know what, what we can expect going forward if we don't see significant reductions in emissions. Before we talk about that generally, I do have another kind of out of left field question. So th this is something that I have uh, encountered sometimes from people, which is they will make the argument that, well, actually, greenhouse gas emissions could be good. Because, you know, it could be that in the absence of greenhouse gas emissions, the planet would go into an ice age, right? Those happen periodically. And that would be really, really bad. And so this is kind of protection against that, right? And so the, I guess the idea is, you know, people talk about, well, there are all these apocalyptic scenarios that could come from greenhouse gas emissions. And so even if you don't think that they're very likely, it's better safe than sorry. And this is, I, I guess, kind of a cute counter argument that, well, actually, maybe maybe greenhouse gas emissions are going to save the planet because they'll, they'll ward off a, an ice age. Do you have any reaction to that? Well, it, it probably works. Um, I think I, I think we, we, we as long as uh, carbon dioxide levels stay above about 300 parts per million, we're I, based on how the uh, the orbital cycles go. We're probably good for another 20,000 years. So, uh, yeah, that benefit has already happened. It's not an excuse for continuing with that process. But that does bring up a more more general issue, which is that some aspects of 
climate change are beneficial. Some people have looked at it and say that, you know, if you break it down by country, uh, the greatest harm comes from places to places in the tropics, but places like uh, Canada and Russia uh, might actually be net beneficiaries of global warming, at least economically. And uh, probably Russia is happier about that than Canada is. But even carbon dioxide itself has an impact on growth of, of crops. And at least uh, if carbon dioxide did not also affect climate, the rise of carbon dioxide would be unequivocally good for man and for ecosystems in general because it would increase global productivity. It's the unfortunate aspect of uh, it also mucks with the climate itself that, uh, that leads things off into negative territory. And also, uh, if you look at... Uh, um, the changes in, say, vegetation over the past few decades, it looks like things are getting greener in general globally because of this carbon dioxide effect. Part of the problem is that that's great as long as the climate doesn't change enough that the plants are no longer happy. So it works for a while. And then also the climate system responds to carbon dioxide over a period of time, whereas the plants respond to it right off the bat. So they get happy, but it's a short-lived high before the uh, hangover kicks in, shall we yeah. say. I will say there is one, I think, downside to global warming for Russia that they may not have fully thought through. And that is that, you know, uh, when when Napoleon and Hitler tried to invade Russia, it was so cold that uh, th that helped defeat them. And if, if Russia becomes kind of pleasant in the winter because it's warmer, they may not have that protection anymore. So well, that's true, but they'd be living in London anyway. <laughs> right. So let me just ask, there is, you know, if you go to the A&M website for your department, there's a, there's a climate change statement there, I think, that's signed by all the professors that talks about, you know, just a couple of key points about what's known on climate. And one of them is, uh, I don't have it in front of me, paraphrasing, it's something like, if uh, emissions continue under the current paths, we're looking at more than a two degrees centigrade rise in temperatures over the course of the 21st century. And that poses, I believe the language is this, serious risks, something like that, serious risks and costs. Well, well, if we're going to talk about our statement, I'm going to actually make sure right, we right, talk good, about good. our yeah, statement. Yeah, right. uh, so I'll, so I'll okay. read it to you. Um, I'll skip the preamble. Uh, we all agree with the following three conclusions based on curved evidence. One, the Earth's climate is warming meaning the temperature of the lower atmosphere and ocean been increasing over many decades. Average global temperature is warmed by about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit between 1880 and 2012. Two, it's extremely likely humans are responsible for more than half of the warming between 1951 and 2012. We talked about that one already. And three, under so-called business-as-usual emission scenarios, additional global average warming would likely be 2.5 to 7 degrees by the end of the century. Continued rising temperatures risk serious challenges for human society and ecosystems. It's difficult to quantify those risks except to say that the potential magnitude of impacts rises rapidly as temperatures reach the high end of the range quoted above. Okay, so first let me say that one of the things that I appreciate about this statement is that you put all the temperatures in Fahrenheit, not Celsius. And as a, you know, as a proud American, it always grates me that all the climate stuff is done in Celsius because uh, my brain doesn't work that way. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because a uh, climate skeptic might uh, say we did Fahrenheit because the numbers yeah, are bigger. Yeah, right. Well, you know, perhaps the reason that the climate skeptics like the Celsius is because the numbers are smaller. I don't know. 
Um, all right. So the statement mentions challenges and risks. So I, I want to talk both about what is the most likely scenario. And then I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of worst case scenarios. But just to start with most likely, let's say that temperatures do rise in that range. You know, what are some of the challenges or risks that we might face from that? Well, obviously, we'll deal with higher temperatures. That's sort of the self-evident one. And among the other problematic aspects of the climate system, the ones most likely to change are extreme precipitation, both in terms of uh, heavier rainfall when rainfall occurs and uh, overall rainfall not really keeping pace with that. So we end up with uh, some drier periods as well. Sea level will definitely continue increasing. The, I have to say the word risk has two different meanings for people in general. First of all, risk of high temperatures, yeah, we're going to have those. There's, there's going to be certain health risks associated with those high temperatures. There's going to be risk to society associated with those high temperatures. Another way to think about risk that also applies is we don't know for sure what's going to happen to many aspects of the climate system or how many aspects of ecosystems or society will respond to it. So there are risks of certain adverse reactions as well. Um, or chain reactions or tipping points or what have you that we can't quantify and can't say that any of them are likely to happen, but we can say that the risk of these sorts of things happening increases as temperatures go up as we get farther outside the range of climate states that uh, the world has evolved to expect. So the risks that concern me are the ones that, A, we don't know about, or B, we, we know are possible but can't really quantify very well. Things like ecosystem collapse. We don't know to what extent that, you know, uh, the, the rate of the changing climate leading to changes in when plants bloom versus when insects are going to be pollinating them and those sorts of things. Or, you know, if you lose pollinators because a certain disease has become able to uh, spread in a particular climate that it didn't used to be able to do, how that then affects the whole production, both of uh, you know the natural ecosystem as well as human agriculture. So I worry about the risks that are extreme weather events that are likely to happen that we have high confidence in. I worry more about the things I don't know about. Yeah. So let me ask you a little bit about Worst case scenarios. So these are not necessarily, so I, I want to stress, these are not necessarily uh, likely, you know, maybe they're even unlikely, but possible if when you gave the range of warming, I think the, the upper end was 2.5 to 7 degrees by the end of the century, you know, assuming that it's on the the upper end of that, you know, seven degrees Fahrenheit. We all live here in Texas, right? It's very hot here in the summer, you know, 100 plus degrees all the time. I, I do not relish the idea of it being 107 degrees as opposed to 100 or 115 as opposed to 108 or whatever. But if that were to happen, it would be inconvenient and costly. And if there were more bigger hurricanes, right? I've lived through some hurricanes. Those are not pleasant either. And there's, you know, damage comes from that. People die or whatever. But you do often hear people talk about, including in some, you know, I've read in some, you know, reputable reports that people will say things like, well, it's an existential crisis, or it's not clear that humanity would be able to adapt to that degree of warming. So, you know, just which is a little hard for me to understand, because we have adapted to a, a wide variety, you know, people have adapted to life in Ethiopia, and in the Yukon, 
as far as, you know, non-science fiction worst case scenarios, realistically, what, what what is the worst that could happen if we don't significantly reduce emissions or do something else to, to halt warming? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say it's, it's highly unlikely that that uh, humans would become extinct. For example, you know, as a as a scientist, I can't say that's impossible. Like, you know, there are, there are certain certain scenarios that uh, don't work out too well that could be imagined. And of course, the intolerability of going extinct probably means you really don't want to take any sort of risk in that regard. So, even though I believe it's 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 almost certainly not going to happen, it's still you know it's the sort of thing that would you know haunt me in the back of my mind. It's like, well, I wouldn't really want to bet all of humanity's existence on it not and that, happening. It just it, that would presumably involve some sort of feedback loop or something where you know you reach a tipping point and then natural processes take over and we become like Venus. Is that the idea? or well that's one scenario where it could happen uh, another scenario is that pollination becomes impossible another scenario is that that while the it certainly would be possible for humans uh, 70,000 years ago to migrate to the survivable areas of Canada and Russia uh, in response to massive climate change uh, nowadays, we have things like national borders and armies that would make it much more challenging to do no, so. And given how close we seem to have come to 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 nuclear disaster and possible human extinction during the previous half century for no particularly good reason, uh, I imagine the likelihood of nuclear war under massive climate change, human migration scenarios is that much higher. Okay, I think we could take Canada, but I, I, I take your point. Well, that's the problem. If Russia well, yeah, objects, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it doesn't matter what Canada yeah, does. That's true. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem for for uh, you know Germans and uh, and the Chinese, perhaps. I don't know. Um, well, let me ask. Let me ask sort of my man on the street question. Um, you know, if if you're somebody like me that's not a climatologist and you want to, you're, you're open minded. You 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 see sort of radical claims on each side, uh, and you don't really know where to go for information. How do you approach this? Either from asking the right questions or what sources. What would you say to somebody that sort of in good faith wants to actually understand things as opposed to just being led around by politicians? Well. So if you're not willing to believe most scientists, then you're pretty much out of luck. There's nobody to, <laughs> to trust. If you are willing to believe most scientists, then the reports that get put together by large numbers of scientists from diverse backgrounds with diverse expertise are going to be the most reliable sources of information. And uh, for that, that includes the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, um, it also includes the National Climate Assessment. It includes reports on climate that are produced by the National Academy of Sciences. Those are not, you know, guaranteed to be 100% correct or 100% bias-free, but they're going to be better. Objectively, they would be expected to be better than what you could get anywhere else. And from my perspective as an insider who knows the subject, I can tell you they are better than what you can get anywhere else. And uh, even though the the latest uh, IPCC reports on uh, climate change go to thousands of pages. They do start with a summary for policymakers, which is written in lay language, which is possible to understand and cross-references uh, some of the more detailed information. Now, if you're approaching it just from, if you don't want to do the deep dive, but just want to get a, get a flavor of things, 
Uh, the reports also tend to have little bullets and sidebars that address some of the most common questions, such as like, how do we know it's not natural variability, for example? Those sorts of things do get addressed in there also. So I point to those as being objectively reliable, as good as it's going well, to be. What about basically. sort of more popular journals? Are there more uh, digestible you know, science publications that are, that sort of a common person when they want to sit down and, and sort of take something in over the course of 30 minutes, an hour? Uh, are there anything like that that you can suggest? I don't read science magazines myself, so I wouldn't be able to evaluate them too well. I do read newspapers, popular magazines, and get quoted in them as well. So I have developed a sense of how accurate they are by virtue of what they say about either things I know about or how well they represent what I actually tell right. them when they're trying to quote me. And in that regard, there are some really good science writers out there that that I trust because I know they're going to try to get opinions from a variety of scientists. They're going to try to do a good job with that. People like uh, Seth Borenstein of the Associated Press, the New York Times is great. Those sorts of sources, leading leading newspapers, are good sources of, for interpreting the latest news on climate change. The worst falls into two camps. They're the, they're the, they're the ones that are clearly ideological whether they be on the liberal or conservative side, you, you really can't trust what they say to give you a, a good perspective of what the scientists really think. And also, and regrettably, national net news networks just don't devote, the, don't have the time and interest to get into the nuances of, of scientific issues. They tend to be looking for attention-grabbing stories. And uh, I've had experiences where I've gotten uh, like, 10 minutes back and forth of the reporter on camera with the reporter trying to ask different versions of the same question, hoping to get uh, a different version of an answer than the one I was willing to provide them. Well, I, I, that, that reminds me because I've, I've asked various versions of this type of question of Josiah and he never answers the questions the way I want him to. Uh, so one of the headlines that I've seen recently is that there's a, um, a startup company that is pulling carbon out of the air to make cheeseburgers. And I've also seen uh, uh, there's some startups that are trying to pull carbon out of the air to make uh, charcoal. Can we fight climate change with technologies like this? Well, one of the big uh, messages from the IPCC report on limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius was that it's, it's, it's absolutely not possible to do it unless by some time around the middle of the 21st century, we develop a economically viable way to pull large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So we have not done that yet. And it's, it's pretty dangerous to pin hopes on a technology that hasn't been developed. But that's pretty much the only way to do it. So um, it's not going to be some massive breakthrough that says, whoop, Suddenly, suddenly we've cut costs down by a factor of 100. It's going to be these baby steps that technology gradually improves. So while none of these are actually going to be solutions to the problem, they could well be steps on the way to a solution. Right. Last question. This is something that uh, lighter that we asked a lot of our guests. Is there a particular um, climate themed movie or TV show that is your favorite? It uh, doesn't have to be post-apocalyptic, although that does seem to be a trend in a lot of the, you know, those sorts of movies. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's pretty challenging to get a 
climate theme movie that's tolerable. <laughs> I went into the day after tomorrow screenings thinking, okay, I'll write down this list of on one side of the paper things that gets right and the other side things that gets wrong. Uh, because it'll be great for teaching for my students. And unfortunately, I had to continue the wrong list on the right side. There were so many of them. Um, one I like personally is uh, Chasing Ice, a documentary about uh, setting up cameras on glaciers to monitor over many years how, how the size of glaciers changes. It gets down into the, the human aspects of the, of the problem. Um, it provides a a visual representation of stuff going on that most people prefer to a uh, list of equations. And uh, I've spoken with the filmmakers, so uh, I uh, uh, have good experience with the But with you, the you don't have project. a financial interest in the movie. Uh. No, I okay. don't. I'm not chasing right. dollars. <laughs> chasing guys, not dollars. All right. Our guest today has been Professor John Nielsen-Gammon. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. Welcome.